So just a heads up, this episode covers topics of pregnancy and motherhood. If you are an individual who's navigating fertility and pregnancy, we encourage you to please take care of yourself. Hey, Lizzie, I have a story for you. It has a young girl's fantasy, the reality of postpartum depression, and the magical but at times isolating journey of helping two tiny humans to grow. It's a misconnection. Welcome to Misconnections. We're both Elizabeth. I'm Elizabeth Via, aka Lizzie. And I'm Elizabeth Wyndham, aka Beth. Misconnections is a podcast that explores our longing to connect and the circumstances that stand in our way. Each episode will bring a true story of a misconnection and an expert guest to help us unpack it so that we can all get better at making real meaningful connections that feel good to us. That's why we started this show. After a series of our own misconnections in dating, friendships, and family relationships, we decided to get some help. Okay, Lizzie, are you ready to hear this misconnection story? Do I need tissues? Yeah, you do. Okay, everyone, here's the story. <laughs> we met the same way many young girls first meet you, spinning up fantasies of their future children, envisioning blissfully happy babies, equating you, motherhood, to completeness, pure happiness, unconditional love, and purpose. I always knew I wanted to be a mother and in turn created an idealistic image of what you look like. I saw myself with a boatload of kids, 10 to be exact, with me as the mother positioned right at the heart of this perfect family unit. Fueled by an abundance of the warmth, love, and affection we all had for one another. These ideas stemmed from both my parents having big families themselves, each of them one of four. I craved feeling important, necessary, and most of all, loved. And you had always seemed like the ultimate way to achieve all of this, surrounded by humans created by me, who needed me so deeply in every way. I imagined pregnancy as pure bliss, so connected to my own body and to the little body growing within me. I'd be transformed into a beautiful ball of maternal euphoria, swelling with the future right there inside of me. Eventually, I lowered my aspirations of having 10 children to a much more reasonable three. Kevin and I even picked out three names, two girls, one boy. We could feel it. You stood before me with open arms, beckoning me into you. I always thought you would make me feel whole. I am a woman, after all. I have a uterus, after all. My whole purpose is to be a mother, after all. That is my function. So it should all just come easily and naturally to me, right? When I got pregnant, it felt like I had an alien growing inside of me. I was consumed by discomfort and pain, thrown into the crazy reality of the actual sensations of pregnancy, and yanked from my naive utopian fantasies. It was terrifying. And early on, I was overwhelmed by fear. I would tap on my belly and she would tap back. But instead of feeling excitement and wonder, I felt a sense of dread that something bad would happen before I even got to meet her outside of my body. That somehow I would fail at the one thing I had been put on this earth to be able to do. Even imagining the devastation of that loss wrecked me. I didn't love the experience of pregnancy the way I had always thought I would. But there were some aspects I'll always cherish. I'm grateful that I was able to share my body with my daughters. Being pregnant gave me a different perspective and an appreciation for my body and its abilities. I might have been riddled with insecurities about failure, overcome by my fear of you before I even became a mother, but I have more grace for myself now in hindsight. In two years, my body created two humans. Two humans who now walk and talk and laugh and cry and learn and feel and love. I did that. When I envisioned my life with you, I was never alone. Kevin would be there too, my husband and co-parent. 
He would be my partner through it all. But even before the divorce, so much of my experience with you was done alone and was so incredibly isolating. I suffered from postpartum depression and felt an extreme sense of protection over the girls. I thought nobody else would be able to hold this child the way that I do or care for them the right way. I became possessive of my role as mother, jealous of anyone else doing anything that felt like it could take that power away from me. I tried to tell myself that everything would be fine, that I needed the help and would never be replaced. But logic was not computing. There were moments in my relationship with you when I felt crazy. In those early days with you, I lost myself, swallowed up by the frenzy of breastfeeding, sleep deprivation, attempts at household maintenance, cooking, and then going back to work full time. There was no longer any space for me. I lost sight of who I was, my sense of self outside of you, nowhere to be found. But simultaneously felt like I was floundering as a mother, overcome by the urge to do everything right, but not even knowing what right meant. I was struggling to be a mom and a wife, while also still being an actual real person on my own, a real person who enjoyed things. That was the hierarchy. Mom, wife, me. There was very little focus on me, the person who enjoyed things. Where did she go? I couldn't even get my hair done without feeling like a villain for doing something so selfish. I would only go to the hairdresser once or twice a year, but all I could think about was the extravagance of the expense. I had immense guilt for doing something without the girls and entirely for myself, even for just a few hours. It was like a form of self-punishment, like I deserved to feel as small and depleted as possible and allowing myself any ounce of pleasure was shameful. I was only able to acknowledge all of the ways I felt like I was deficient, incapable of appreciating everything I was accomplishing on a daily basis, caring for two small children, caring for a home, working full time. Instead of treating myself with kindness as a human, doing her very best, I treated myself with resentment like I was the enemy. Since you came into my life, I couldn't remember how to love myself. Kevin tried to help, he did, but even accepting his help often made me feel like a failure as a mother. I was breastfeeding, so using a bottle at any point felt like I wasn't doing what was best for my baby. Making sure your child is surviving off your body is a petrifying amount of pressure. The mom guilt is immediate if you're not doing what everyone else tells you is best. In the throes of breastfeeding for the first time, I remember being so profoundly exhausted, drained to my core, and just at the end of myself. But I was choosing to breastfeed. That was my job, so I told myself I couldn't complain about it. This was how I was supposed to feel. This was how I deserved to feel. I spent a lot of time crying alone in the bathroom, questioning everything, questioning you. Was I cut out for this? Would things ever change? Over time, they did. At a certain point, I reached a place of knowing I could handle whatever situation came my way through you. There were ebbs and flows of anxiety and joy with moments of peaceful stasis followed by crisis. But I knew everything would ultimately be okay. The tough moments with my girls were so tough. But once I figured it out, I almost missed the mess. I'd never be able to relate to them in the same way again. They're growing and changing every day, and it's all so fleeting. I wish I had been more gentle on myself in the early days of our relationship. Revisiting that period now, I feel a lot of sadness, remembering the expectations that I put on myself, and the expectations I allowed others to put on me. There really is so much beauty and delight in you, and I wish I could have enjoyed all of that more back then. I look at my girls, I see their smiles, and it's all so magical.
<laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Lizzie. So what do you think? How do you feel? Uh, I found myself feeling really protective of a storyteller, which is not something that this person has asked of me. <laughs> um, but I think that's likely because my older sister, who is my favorite person in the whole wide world, is a mom of a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And I'm watching her move through life as a mom. And like, this shit is hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And it also feels so deeply unfair in a lot of ways and and magical and beautiful. Like let's yes, <laughs> acknowledge all of that, um, <laughs> certainly. But I think from the context of this story, you know, I found myself in the past five years with my sister just asking, like, is this the plan? Like, is it the plan to feel this way, all like coiled up and responsible mm -hmm. all the time? And I respect my sister so much. I respect this storyteller so much. I'm so proud of and grateful for the way that she has acknowledged the hard parts of it and also the ways that the fantasy is in conflict with the reality. Yeah. And that there is beauty in the reality and there is also there is a an opportunity for growth yeah. in that reality too and that she desires more for herself in that and more for herself in relationship with her kids as well. So I think that conflict between fantasy and reality is definitely relatable beyond this area of life. I think that at any part of adulthood that mm -hmm. is so present and I'm grateful for her, you know, sharing her story. So we get to talk about it today. And you, Beth? Yeah. I mean, I'm really proud of this storyteller. You know, she took us on a journey and now she's ripe with possibility for herself and for her girls. As you stated, fantasy is fun <laughs> until reality comes in. And sometimes reality is so, so harsh, especially <laughs> when it comes to parenting mm -hmm. and motherhood. And, you know, I just ached for her because she had fear. She had martyrdom. She had anxiety. She had postpartum depression, like it was just stacked upon her. And it was just so intense that like it lied to her about who she is, you mm. know? And so for her to kind of give us insight to that, I just really respect her for doing that. As we've all said, I'm not a mama, but I, I'm an aunt times six. And so <laughs> I've seen how parenting can be hard and caregiving and just raising growing humans, especially right now. I just thought that this was such a beautiful story about a misconnection with motherhood. So, you know, that's what we're going to kind of talk about today, how one can go about just connecting with themselves better in the midst of the overwhelm of parenting. And I'm just excited about that. Mm -hmm. So... For this next part of the episode, we're going to bring in a special guest to talk to us about the opportunity to connect with yourself by reclaiming your creative life in a far too busy world. Eve Rotsky transformed a blueberries breakdown into a catalyst for social change when she applied her Harvard-trained background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organizations? Her New York Times bestselling book and Reese Book Club pick, Fair Play, a gamified life management system that helps partners rebalance their domestic workload and reimagine their relationship, has elevated the cultural conversation about the value of unpaid labor and care. In her highly anticipated follow-up, Find Your Unicorn Space, Reclaim Your Creative Life in a Too Busy World, Rodsky explores the cross-section between the science of creativity, productivity, and resilience. Described as the antidote to physical, mental, and emotional burnout, Rodsky aims to inspire a new narrative around the equality of time and the individual right to personal time choice that influences sustainable and lasting change on a policy level. Eve's work is backed by Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's media company, 
And Eve was born and raised by a single mom in New York City and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Seth, and their three children. I've had Eve on my wish list of guests since the origin of this podcast. I knew at some point we would be discussing mom guilt, the effects of unbalanced division of household labor, and the need for our unicorn space. So today we'll be talking about that. Welcome Eve to Miss Connections. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks that for being here. so powerful. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. Obviously, we're reflecting on that story as two people who are not mothers, but who are still feeling the impact of that story. We'd love to know, how did you feel hearing that story? Well, it's interesting. I was actually watching Goodwill Hunting again mm. with my son, Ben, this weekend. <laughs> and I feel so viscerally connected to this woman that I you can hear my voice. I'm feeling teary mm-hmm. about the part where Robin Williams looks at Matt Damon and he says over and over again, it's not your fault. Mm. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Mm. And I was sobbing during that part. And I think why I was sobbing again, even though I'd seen the movie before with Ben, and Ben is my middle son. He's 12. He's looking at me like, what is going on? (laughs) You're having an emotional experience. Was in a way, I felt like Robin Williams was talking to me and all the other women, the thousands and thousands of women that um, have told me painful stories, like the beautiful story that we just heard and being able to tell all those women and almost in being a ghost of Christmas future, Beth, (laughs) right? As you've heard me speak before, Mm -hmm. that I'm the ghost of Christmas future to tell women like you who may at some point enter motherhood that it's not your fault, that you believe these expectations Mm. and tropes fall on you. It is not your fault that motherhood has been betrayed as a panacea, Mm -hmm. as our only identity. It's not our fault that we go in to a new phase of life that uh, society has designed for us and has designed for us to make it our only path for women, but yet a path that most of us will ultimately fail at if we look at it through the lens of that beautiful essay. So Mm -hmm. I felt very, very (laughs) viscerally touched by uh, the way the readership didn't speak to her ex-husband when she said divorce. Yeah that she was speaking to motherhood itself, because Mm -hmm. I love talking about the more systemic issues, uh, because it's ultimately not about this woman and her relationship with her husband. It's about what society has done to women Mm -hmm. uh, since the Industrial Revolution, that we can (laughs) can sort of unpack the next, the past hundred years together. So do we start there and then keep going, or where do we go from here? Uh, Well, you go pretty deep in this connection, (laughs) I was listening to you a lot over the past few days. So I'm hoping we can go that deep too. And and look, I'm a lot like you. A lot of men, especially who listen to me, say I like to go really dark to go light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do think there's a rainbow arc here, Mm -hmm. but I think acknowledging the dark is how you ultimately get to the light. Yeah. Obviously, the story is filled with the darkness, and we leave with a little bit of light, which is so lovely. And as you said, you've had thousands and thousands of conversations about this. And so... There's obviously a lot of people navigating the overwhelm of parenting and life and work and how does it all come together? And I'd love to know, like, why is it so hard for families right now? Like, what are those major contributing factors that led you to write Fair Play? That's such a great question. A few origin stories, but I think I'll tell you one quick story uh, that I write about because it was really important to me in terms of how I came to this work. Nobody sort of sets out on their third grade, what do you want to be when you grow Mm -hmm. up bored and say they want to be an expert Mm -hmm. on the gender division of labor. That is not (laughs) what it said. I think it said veterinarian. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm centering relationships with men right now. I don't know. It wasn't exactly obvious who she was married to, but a lot of the expectations around motherhood come from the gaze of being in a patriarchy and Mm -hmm. being married to men. So I do want to center that, but understand that the books I wrote apply to all different relationships, polyamorous, LGBTQIA. But I think it's important to center the dynamic of the assumption that women will marry men and be responsible for all the unpaid labor. Because that expectation is not something I think we really understand. We come in thinking, again, that motherhood's going to be sort of this 
frolicking in a field. It's now worse because we have Pinterest and right. Instagram and all these, you know, ridiculous tropes yeah. um, that make things look like they're perfect and everybody else has a perfect life. Before that, even when I first had my kid, you know, we had what to expect when you're expecting where the only thing in OBGYN would tell you is that your child was the size of a jelly bean, but not that your relationship was about to be destroyed in addition to your career mm-hmm. and your body. Or that, you know, P.S., the only thing society wants of women is for us to be parents, partners, and maybe professionals uh, if we're lucky. And God forbid you try to be anything else. Like our reader was trying Mm -hmm. to sort of break out of those stereotypes. But for me, one of the origin stories was literally a drunk man's jacket. So (laughs) Do tell. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, a, A wet jacket and a broken beer bottle was sort of one of the pivotal moments of my life. And I'll just let you picture the scene a little bit. I had uh, my second son, I uh, was already struggling with one kid, but similar to this reader, she had two kids in pretty rapid succession. Yeah. I had two mm-hmm. kids in three years. I had now subsequently have a third child. And as my son says, one of the things that is Google about me is, is Eve Rodsky still married? <laughs> I am, but I'm married to a different Seth Rodsky 2.0. But let's talk about the 1.0 that this woman divorced, which was my other option. During 1.0, right after I had my second son, I was being abandoned by things around me. I think that's important to understand because mm-hmm. she, she, there's a couple words I want to pick up on what she said. One was isolation. Yeah. It is so incredibly isolating to be a mother. Ironically, it sounds like, again, you're going to be surrounded by extended family and flowers and people who need you, but it feels viscerally like one of the most painful and horrible times of anybody's life. And all I can explain it is if anybody has ever had a single parent experience or a time where they've been abandoned, it feels that way. I remember being in a little car when I was young in front of a Chinese restaurant. My mother was picking up takeout for us in her Dodge Aries and she moved to the right. Apparently she was going to a drugstore to pick up something else because she moved out of the the Chinese food restaurant and moved to the right, not directly to my car. I ran out of the car to the Chinese restaurant screaming around seven or eight years old, telling the Chinese restaurant that my mother has abandoned me. They need to call the police. Mm -hmm. There's nobody for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm never going to see my parent again. I was, you know, again, I had one parent at that time. My father wasn't in my life, but I, that visceral abandonment is sort of what it feels like to have a newborn baby that all of a sudden you're assumed that you're supposed to be the primary caretaker of. So that's all I can say. But the drunk man, when I had my second son, I was trying to go back to work. So I didn't want to be abandoned or isolated. Like I said, so isolating. So I was trying my best not to do that. Mm -hmm. So I first go back to my workplace and say, I want to return to work. They gave up my direct reports to somebody else. Mm -hmm. They told me if I want to come back to work, there was no place for me to pump breast milk. It would have to be in a storage closet with no outlets. So you can imagine trying to negotiate that with two little kids at home. I was feeling abandoned by my workplace. My career was a big part of my identity. As you beautifully said, I went to Harvard. I worked my ass off. I did that on scholarships and grants. Mm -hmm. Everything to me was this academic career that I had built for myself, Mm -hmm. um, So having the idea that my career was going to be gone was very painful and felt abandoned from that perspective. Then in the same time that my second son was a baby, the context was I had a other son in a toddler transition program, which in America, we don't have free childcare. Mm -hmm. So that was a million dollars in like 10 minutes. So in that situation, they gave you name tags and that name tag said Zach's mom. The people that told me that they were going to be my community, the people who knew me better than anybody else didn't know my fucking name. So let's just say that. So I'm being abandoned because I don't have a name anymore. I'm Zach's mom and the community that's supposedly my main community now, my son's school community. I have a newborn baby at home and I have a workplace that's abandoning me. And on top of this, I decide to go back to work with flexibility, start my own firm. My husband, Seth, who again, before kids was that equitable partner who told me motherhood was not going to be isolating. He promised me this. He promised Mm -hmm. he'd be an equal partner. I go away. He texts me at 7 a.m. On my first trip back from maternity leave to go see a client, he texts me at 7 a.m. A guy left his jacket and beer bottle on our lawn on on my way to this trip to Seattle for the day. Okay, so I just want you to understand (laughs) that what the fuck are you supposed to do? (laughs) 
<laughs> about a dude's jacket and broken beer bottle at 7 a.m. when you are flying to Seattle for a one-day work trip on the first trip back where I already had a breast pump, extra clothes, all my documents because I'm a woman. I'm always extra prepared, <laughs> yep, yep, right? Yep. I go to the meeting, facilitate a great day because that was my day job always and still is. I run a law firm for highly complex families that look like the HBO show Succession. Yeah. You should feel bad for me. Those are difficult clients. <laughs> but I had this great day of bringing grace and humor and generosity to this very difficult succession type family that was feuding ridiculously when I first met them. I had this great, wonderful day. I don't end up pumping actually in that room with the clients because breast pumps back then sounded like sex. <laughs> so it was like, eh, eh, eh. and the man was 80 and his family was, you know, very traditional. They're coming suits. And so I didn't want to be like, listen, I'm not fucking someone in your bathroom. Yeah. Pumping. So I ended up pumping breast milk in a stairwell. I run back home. But the thing I want to tell you about why I can relate so much and ultimately created a movement or trying to with you as cultural warriors too, to talk about these issues is because of what happened when I came home that night. So if you can imagine what it's like, right, going back to work after I told you, being abandoned by, by my workplace, having to restart over with my own law firm, being known as Zach's mom in my community and having a partner who texts me that someone left a wet jacket and broken beer bottle on our lawn. And what it felt like at that time, this was 2011, what it felt like to see that at 10.30 p.m. when I came home from this long day, mm. that the Jack and Beer bottle was st were still there. <laughs> they were still on the lawn. We hadn't told him what to do with them. Well, <laughs> I, but I decided to give Seth the benefit of the doubt, right? Because I figured, like, maybe he was dead, right? <laughs> um, or, you know, trapped under a giant rock. But, but actually, when I came in and put the liquid gold of breast milk in the refrigerator, I went upstairs and he was not dead. In fact, he was happily alive and telling me about his day, how he was able to decompress from his long day. He worked out. He he finished a PTI, which is a sports center, party mm -hmm. and interruption episode, worked on a PowerPoint deck, but not enough time, apparently, to pick up a Jack and a beer bottle he found on our lawn 16 hours earlier. And so that night was the night I realized that the text he sent me wasn't a, this is weird, I'm your equal partner text. It was a, I don't have time for whatever that shit is, mm -hmm. but it's it's on you. Mm. And then I start to think about, because I ultimately did clean up the jacket and beer ball. This is before fair play. Sure. Mm -hmm. The 12 minute it took to put all the shards, because I had a toddler at the time and I went playing with glass shards into that garbage bag to ultimately when I went upstairs to Seth and said, you're fucking welcome. You know, I was <laughs> taking a lot of like lessons from my work day about communicating with grace and humor and generosity, <laughs> but... I time myself. It was my first act of resistance. It took me 12 minutes from that first glass shard to finally throwing out the jacket and beer bottle. And it was 12 minutes of my life I would never get back. And I started to think that that was 10 years of marriage. And I had thousands of this is on you texts. Mm -hmm. And so thousands of this is on you texts times a decade of marriage means that ultimately at the end of the day, my time was spoken for. Mm. And that's why that letter felt so visceral to me because she lost motherhood. The idea, the concept, the expectations are what take us and our time. And you wonder why young women would question, do they want to enter this institution? It is very, very hard, especially because we've been told to have it all, we have to do it all. Well, and it is so systemic. And I think that it almost feels like opting into certain institutions mean accepting all of the expectations that come with it or fighting your ass off for the rest of your life. And I think that's where, for me, thinking about, I've been married once, experienced that and the expectations and kind of patriarchal injustice that comes <laughs> yes. in heterosexual relationships with cis white men oftentimes. But I think that hearing in the words of the storyteller, the words of what you're saying today is that so much of it that's not just inherent to one party in the relationship or not just like you were saying with the community that you were entering into being Seth's mom is that it's actually inherent to all of us. And mm -hmm. that's this, I think the scary part <laughs> is Absolutely. that it isn't for people who are benefiting from it that it is 
inherent to. It is in every part of the system. And so I think that the the work that you're doing is so powerful in that it is breaking down those big systemic pieces into actionable conversations, into systems for your own home, into moments that you can advocate for and create space for, for yourself. And I think that that applies to really anyone who desires to have the parts of that that are good, but don't want to wholeheartedly accept the parts of it that are, can just fuck right off. That's right. (laughs) Right. And the truth is that is where we're going dark to go light. Cause I want to say we're entering the light part of this conversation (laughs) that there is ways to break generational cycles. And the beauty is it's a both and. So you don't have to wait for sort of patriarchy to end for this to happen. And you also don't have to realize that individual solutions are enough. Sure. We can sort of do both at the same time. And that's really what fair play has evolved into. It was this idea that I'm going to become my own client. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm going to be a game changer in my own marriage. Sometimes to be a game changer, it requires leaving the marriage. Mm -hmm. Other times for me, it was being my first client (laughs) um, or being my next client of Mm -hmm. understanding that if I work for home organizations, could I design a system the way I do for these highly complex families and do it for my own family and then test it over and over again for seven years until I realize that it works, this idea for everybody. But it does require an intention to understand that expectations and assumptions have to be substituted for some sort of structured decision-making. Mm-hmm. And if you look at structured decision-making, there's a secret formula for how we can all do that in any of our relationships. Really, all of our relationships are organizations because there are two people achieving a goal. This is an organization, mm-hmm. you together in this podcast. It's also a unicorn space, which we'll talk about. Yes. <laughs> but the beauty is that there is a secret formula, and that secret formula is boundaries, systems, and communication. Mm-hmm. But what I'm going to predict, because they call it, sociologists call it a saturation point. I've entered a saturation point because of how many people I've interviewed for Fair Play uh, and Unicorn Space. This storyteller, with all of that, right, you get to a point where you're so overwhelmed that you do a couple of things. You start to devalue your own time. So it's, I call it C-I-Y-O-O where you're complicit in your own oppression. Mm. So this is where Mm -hmm. I want to be your like ghost of Christmas future and also talk to the storyteller. What she probably did was say to herself, it's too late to ask for help at this point, right? I'm so in it. Or as she said, you know, it's such my role now that even accepting help is too hard. My partner makes more money than me. My job is more flexible. What other toxic things do we say to ourselves? And the time it would take me to even start telling Beth what to do I should just do it myself. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're both colorectal surgeons, but my partner is better at focusing on one task at a time, <laughs> which is a true story, mm-hmm. and I can find the time. Mm-hmm. So what I want to say to our listeners and to the storyteller is that it's not your fault, mm-hmm. again, yeah. because at the end of the day, there's no way. We're not Albert Einstein, right? Mm-hmm. We can't fuck with the space-time continuum. We can't <laughs> find time. Yeah. So when I had that realization that I can't find time, that, wow, there's just a different expectation over how I'm supposed to use my time. Mm-hmm. It was a life-changing moment for me because time choice, understanding that all time is created equal, that my time is not money because I'll always make less money than a man because of our pay gaps, that my time is 24 hours. And that was the breakthrough. It wasn't talking to Seth about how to clean up a drunk guy's jacket. It was saying to him, I will not live in a world with you where you have three hours every night after our kids go to bed to use your time as you want to use it, work out, PowerPoint deck, decompress, whereas I'm doing things in service of our home Mm -hmm. till my head hits the pillow two hours after you are already asleep. I will no longer live that way. And once you have that realization that you can start valuing your own time, it is very, very powerful. Now, one caveat Society has not set us up that way. It has chosen to let women believe that men's time is diamonds. Mm -hmm. Not Again, this is systemic, not men's fault. I'm not blaming the man in this story either. Men's time is diamonds. It's to be guarded and protected at all times. Women's time is infinite. It's sand. And it's to be spent by everybody at all times. If you understand that society does that, you don't have to believe me, but you can see that if women enter male professions, salaries automatically go down. You see in health systems today, 
the idea that breastfeeding is free when it's 1,800 hours a year of a woman's time. It's a full-time job. So you don't have to believe me. You have to understand that society does view women and men's time differently. And then we start to internalize that. And so when we start to internalize that, we only use our time the way society will tell us. We're willing to use it as parents, as I said earlier, partners Mm -hmm. or professionals to make money to help the family unit. We will not expend time without incredible guilt to return to who we are. So instead of FOMO, it becomes a FOMM, like <laughs> F-O-M-M, like a fear of missing me. Hmm. We don't have FOMO, but we we start to, as this woman beautifully described, we lose ourselves and our core identity because ultimately our time has been spoken for by our roles. Hmm. Yeah. Which is the perfect transition into your next book. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Which is Finding Your Unicorn Space, or it's Find Your Unicorn Space. Yes, It's a directive, find it. Yes, find it. And (laughs) I ate this book up, loved it so much. And I think that you're right, that 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 part of the the story where she's reflecting on, you know, missing herself and feeling like the gap between where she is today and where that connectedness with who she is outside of motherhood— um, that that gap feels really big. In your book, you define unicorn space as the active and open pursuit of self-expression in any form and which requires value-based curiosity and purposeful sharing of this pursuit with the world. You offer that as the antidote to burnout and the answer to that fear of missing me. Um, why is unicorn space important? Well, it was interesting what she also described as self-care. And this this, this was a beautiful letter. It, it unpacked so many of the things that <laughs> yeah. we need to talk about today. But the, the one thing she describes as doing for herself is commodified wellness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the one thing she said that she was doing for herself that she felt guilt about was actually what I would call commodified wellness, something where you have to spend money on that society tells you you have to do. Mm-hmm. That is not even in the realm of what we're talking about today that you need for wellness. Mm-hmm. We talk about burnout. Women are sold, you know, one cream after the other for exhaustion since the pandemic. Whatever your household configuration are, women are incredibly burnt out. And then we try to sell them back the things like go get your hair dyed or yeah. go get a manicure. So what we're talking about in the second book is this idea of what happens when you miss me? What happens when you lose your identity? in either a relationship where a man said, like, the ultimate goal for me is to retire you. There's this whole new trad wife yes. thing going on it on TikTok that's wild. horrifying. Okay, this I, idea I have that, thankfully yes, skipped that part. Away, stay away, away as much I'm as gonna, you can. We're just going to move right on. <laughs> but, we're getting to but, the dark part again. No, <laughs> yes, we're going to stay out of that. But the beauty of this idea and why it's called Unicorn Space, this is a whole second book about it, is that creativity is not optional. Yeah. Women need to understand this. Again, it's not our fault that we think it is and that it's in our Maslow's hierarchy. It's somewhere even not even on the triangle. Mm -hmm. But whether you have children or not, whatever your family configuration is, anything you do, what are you doing now? What's your next thing? There is such a treadmill culture of being able to have to commodify everything that we do and we have to justify it, right? And so what happens is that our mental and physical health start to break down. One other thing that happened to women, so women are the ones that buy these happiness books, Mm -hmm. how to be happy. So I'm just going to tell us all the secret that searching for happiness, actually it's turning out in the science, makes us more sad. (laughs) We can literally gratitude journal ourselves to death. Like this whole, (laughs) look, I I have to just say I get to. No, I don't fucking get to wipe my kids ass (laughs) or go pick them up for school. I fucking have to. Like I have to. I don't get to, you know? So please let's just burn all that, whatever that toxic positivity down is Mm -hmm. and understand the key message of Unicorn Space for women is that we're not going to be happy all the time. Sure. But we have to understand what mental wellness really is. Mental health, especially for women, is one thing and one thing only. It's having an appropriate emotion for women in this culture in America or when you're married in that mm-hmm. capitalist page, you know, mm-hmm. patriarchal system, a lot of it's going to be that appropriate emotion is rage, anger, sadness, resentment. Mm-hmm. The appropriate emotion at the appropriate time when motherhood enters, it's going to be a lot, but having the ability and strength to weather it. Mm. Yeah. And that's what Unicorn Space is. It's a book to understand that self-care and friendships alone are not enough. 
we need this third thing, which I call unicorn space, to weather all the shit that's going to come down on us. It's never going to be a perfect life. We're not always going to be happy. You're going to have appropriate emotions at the appropriate time. This idea of unicorn space is your ability to weather it. It's the tools and the ability to weather those appropriate emotions at those appropriate mm -hmm. times. You know, it's interesting because I don't have kids, but as I was reading this book, I was thinking from my perspective is, you know, I am somebody who probably could call themselves disabled. You know, I've been sick for over 12 years and there is no timeline of this will be resolved. And so in a lot of ways, how I spend my time is one to pay for medical bills mm -hmm. and then try to support my body to like get through it. And I've definitely been at burnout for quite some time. And it's like, it feels weird to say it, but like, I'm burnt out for caregiving for myself, yeah, you know? Yes. And so I was very challenged reading this book to make time for the unicorn space mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, I justify it because I work for myself. If I don't work, I don't yeah. get paid and then I can't pay my bills and ba da da You know, like I make up all the excuses. You do such a great job in the book, though, of reframing how we can think about the purpose and the scope of pursuing self-expression and sharing that with the world. This version is actually available to us regardless of how much money you make, regardless of the color of your skin, the makeup of your family, your partnered or not. There is time and space for you to be interested in you and share that with others. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's not a privileged narrative. It's actually the opposite. What we found was that people who identified in sort of working class in our surveys were more likely to have unicorn space. There's something as we go up the ladder or try to aspire that we think, like you said, that everything has to be a cycle of productivity, Beth, that mm -hmm. is so hard. So I'll ask you a question. So when you're in sort of that cycle of saying like, I'm not gonna carve out time, unfortunately it's not a spin class because it really mm -hmm. requires three things. It requires curiosity, mm -hmm. and then also having connection with others where you're sharing yourself with the world and completion. So this is a unicorn space, for example. Mm -hmm. Again, it gets more complicated if it's if it's related to your career, because then you need even more unicorn space. I'll make you more greedy. <laughs> and it's extra burning out if you are in a creative profession, because you can technically think your job is your unicorn space, because it does have all these three things. But I will say this space, listening to you, you do have a unicorn space, right? Because you're curious about human nature and these beautiful, this premise of like, what does it look like to actually connect? So that's why I'm laughing because in the paradigm, you already have one and two, curiosity and connection, yeah. right? Because yeah. But what I mean by connection is not that you just have each other, the two Elizabeths, but that you're sharing yourself with the world. That's really the key aspect in terms of dopamine management, which is really what we're talking about here. It's called eudaimonic well-being, but we're just going to call it unicorn space for now. But trust me, it's rooted in science. I promise <laughs> you this is not just, I'm not a happiness guru that just brought this out of my ass. Like this is real science-backed research. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, connection, and completing something. So for women like us, actually, I thought it would be curiosity. That would be this the hard part. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do or I lost myself, so I have a passion gap. But no, women are great at having many, many ideas. But ultimately, completion becomes an issue because like, what's the point of doing a podcast if I'm not gonna be number one on Apple Podcasts, mm -hmm. right? It's this idea we have to be so excellent yeah. that we don't do it, we mm -hmm. give up. And so my question for you, Beth, if you're in a cycle where you're, like you said, I have to pay my bills, I need to take care of myself, what is this like frivolous other th third thing besides you know, sort of like the ultimate medical care for me and my job. Do you think that when you're having those conversations that, because I want to really unpack sure. this, there are three things that women said to me, which was why they had barriers to looking for these spaces of, again, I call it unicorn space because like the mythical equine, mm -hmm. it doesn't exist actually <laughs> until we reclaim it. As Beth was saying, it's very mm -hmm. hard to understand that creativity is not optional. But do you think it's it's hard for you to believe you deserve that permission to be unavailable from the roles? So it's like if you picture yourself turning your phone off during a work day, does that give you like a stress response? Or is it that, yes, you deserve to be unavailable, but that there is some guilt around it? Or do you think it's that the boundary part is hard, being able to ask for what you need from, you know, your, say, your co-partner or your community around you? What do you think of those three things would be the hardest thing for you as you're making those decisions? 
I I would have to <laughs> think about that a little yes, bit more. Yes. Like I think I can definitely turn off my phone. I am a definitely what you would call a recovering perfectionist. And okay. so I just have to excel in what I do. I am a creative person and I have done a lot of, oh, I have this dream of doing something, but if it's just not right, right I will stop. Right. So I am I am one that like really does, if I have any fear of the completion not being good, well, whatever, I just won't do it. So it's like- Got it. So th- that's, that's number two. That, that would be, mm-hmm. if you're having a completion issue, that's typically it's a guilt issue yeah. in that what's the point mm-hmm. of doing this unless it has- goal A, B, or C, right? I'm not going to just, what is the point of studying calculus unless I'm going to use it for something that will make me more perfect in a pursuit. And so why I call it sort of the guilt aspect is because that what's the point attitude is really rooted in this idea that, again, as we said earlier, that if we're using our time for us, for pursuits that we don't see necessarily what the end point is, they could feel incredibly frivolous, right? Um, Especially, again, for women who are conditioned to, like I said, only be these roles of productive person, professional, partner, parent. Those are really the only things we're allowed to be. So I'll give you an example of this woman who was, she had played piano when she was younger. She had given it up. She was a single parent. She was reporting to me that her building is rent controlled, but Juilliard students live there. So there was a music room. So she was going to go back to the music room um, to start playing. And she even told me she like purchased sheet music, which I guess I didn't realize you could still do. I thought you just like take up an iPad or whatever. But she like <laughs> went to a store and actually got sheet oh, music of like Rent and Hamilton. And she booked an hour in the music room in advance. But she said that like as the sun was setting and she was playing, it was it was early in New York. She had this like visceral reaction that her son didn't didn't like being in the dark in daycare. Mm. And so she left the music. She even forgot the music. She left the sheet music in the room. Mm. Uh, She found it later. But this idea that for her, similar to what Beth was just saying, this idea that like, what was the point of practicing again? Like, I'm not going to be in Juilliard again. Like she didn't understand why she just did it. And And so I said to her, well, what about this idea of fun. Like you just told me like the thing that you did that week that you were looking most forward to was playing again. And she was like, well, that, you know, this idea of fun is not something that's in my vocabulary. Like she felt very, very guilty about this idea. She would choose fun over a child. Right. And so I think what happens is we mistake this feeling for real guilt that we're supposed to act on. So we can be angry, we can be mad as women, but guilt will actually, or what's that point type of feeling, will actually make us change our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Like you say, scrap the idea, not do it. Register for the GoDaddy account. And as my friend says, she's a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams. <laughs> she sees the GoDaddy keep coming up every year. And she's like, what's the point? So for this woman, what I was trying to explain to her is that, and Dr. Becky talks about this. She is a friend of mine and she, you know, she has a big social presence, but we talk a lot together about this idea that women feel this, what's the point? Or why would I do this if it's outside of money-making or like you said, just taking you know basic care of yourselves? And we think of it as guilt. Well, I feel guilty for doing this. Well, this is a very important piece to understand. Guilt is only when your actions are out of alignment with your values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you yell at a cab driver, that's one of her examples, because they didn't get you to your airport on time, you may feel guilty. I'll let you both feel guilty because you're probably not the type of people who ultimately <laughs> yell at people for trying to do something nice for them or try to get them somewhere. That's guilt. Instead, what we're feeling when we say, I shouldn't do this, I should be doing something else, that's not guilt. It's actually being worried about someone else's discomfort in not performing for them or the expectations discomfort of like, I'm not making money today. And so that is not actual guilt. So from now on, I'm not allowing anybody to feel guilty in this room or even (laughs) our reader anymore, because the only time you're allowed to feel guilty is if it's out of alignment with our values. So what I will say to you, Beth, is that there is a point Mm -hmm. to just being creative for creative sake for you. A, because I'm telling you right now, it's actually linked to your mental and physical health. So it will help you with those other things. But also because at the end of the day, anything where we feel what's the point or I feel guilty doing this because there's no point to it. That makes no sense because instead you should be saying to yourself, I should be doing this because it's in alignment with my values. Mm-hmm. I know it is. 
you said you're a creative person. So picking up something that is you're going to be creative about where you can take a journey, a new journey, is going to be very, very important for you. And you're allowed to do that. There's no guilt around it because ultimately it's going to be an alignment with your values. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand what real guilt is and what guilt is not. If we're feeling this other feeling, I can't do this, it's typically because we're worried about some other person's expectations of us about what we should be doing. Well, I think that's a big part of what's hard about finding this elusive unicorn yes, space yes, yes. is because there's a part of the journey is like unpacking the layers yes. that come in response to even just the prompt of like, you deserve space for yourself to have fun or you deserve space for yourself to be creative, yes. to explore, to be curious. The response to that is oh, well, I'm, I'm feeling guilty. That's pointing me in the right direction. Well, wait, no, if my guilt isn't pointing me in the right direction, it's the wrong direction. Okay, well, what's the next layer? Yes, <laughs> and, you, yes. and, and to keep peeling it back. I have to imagine that one of the things that you hear as feedback a lot is just time. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that there's just no time or there's no energy. Absolutely. And I'd be curious to know what you say in response to that. Because you, like you're saying, time is a finite resource. Energy is a finite resource resource when people find themselves in the cycle of how do you advise them to find the time and, and energy and why is that worth it? Yeah, I guess what I will just say is that it's so, so American for us to sort of kick the can down the road. It's why we don't invest in preventative medicine. We, <laughs> we, we just treat the disease. I mean, it's just very American to do that. So all I can say is that I'm here to tell you that I've distilled all this research for you. And it's really, it's not optional if you want to have health in your life. Mm -hmm. If you want mental and physical health, we have to be able to weather those appropriate emotions. With climate change and overwhelm and whatever political environment we're going into 24 and all the wars, there has to be something that allows you to weather it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you that you can say you have no time. But what ends up happening is that because we need to weather those appropriate emotions, we're often anger and rage and fear, we're going to weather them. So either we're, we're going to weather them by high cortisol response, which means our adrenal glands get fried and we end up in some sort of chronic illness, which we're seeing with so many different women that have come to us through the years uh, who have not had uh, the time for unicorn space. Again, going a little dark to go light again, yeah. not to scare you. <laughs> But we see insomnia. We see overuse of SSRIs. I, I mean, I've been on them three different times in my life, mostly during during caregiving hard moments. Um, thyroid issues, autoimmune disease, uh, cancer diagnoses, and and on and on. And we're actually doing research now with the University of Southern California, actually on using interventions like Fair Play and Unicorn Space and what it's doing to women's cortisol level and taking hair samples, mm -hmm. which is really cool. So what I'm here to tell you is that from the science. If you don't pursue these things that allow you to weather the hard times, either it's going to come out in your health-related outcomes, or all of us will at some point turn to hedonic pursuits. So hedonic pursuits are doom-scrolling Instagram, <laughs> doom-scrolling Twitter, uh, getting sucked into whatever you know online communities that we're comparing ourselves to, using edibles to get through our days, which so many mothers are talking about that they do. Or, you know, mommy juice, which has sort of become the culture of numbing yourself through caregiving. Mm -hmm. And so that will become our default. So all I can say to you is that you can either carve out the time now or it will hit you at some point. We need these chemicals of endorphins, of dopamine, of oxytocin. These are the, the feel-good chemicals of the brain. And we have to get them. And typically the best way to get them is in some way, some cycle some practice of curiosity, connection, and completion. And so the last thing I'll just say, if I can just sum this up in one word, one sentence, is that the antidote to burnout to what we're talking about today is, I wish I could tell you as a walk around the block, Lizzie. <laughs> I really wish I could tell you. I'm good at that. You know, I wish I could tell you it was, it was like our storyteller that mm -hmm. will say, we're going to get my hair dyed twice mm -hmm. a year. It's not. The only antidote to burnout is being consistently interested in your own life. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's a hard question, as we said, to unpack, right? But then again, this is what misconnections for, for these hard questions. So because that's such a hard question, are you 
interested in your own life? And I would ask women that question or what makes you you? They would start breaking down and crying. So I stopped asking that question because mm-hmm. it was too dark. Yeah. I would say to women instead, what makes you curious? What would make yourself want to share yourself with the world? What would be something you would love to complete if you had no barriers? And then people start to completely come alive because what happens is you start to talk about things that aren't the values that society has given us. Mm-hmm. If you ask women instead, what are your values without asking those other questions? You hear friends, family, family, you know, <laughs> friends, yeah, maybe health. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, it's just so boring. And not mm-hmm. because I blame anybody. Remember back to the Goodwill hunting, it's not our fault. But it's very hard to not like extrinsic shit. Yeah. The nicer house, the nicer car, the third child. You, hey, all my friends, you know, they're going to to Deer Valley to ski. So like, I need to go on that ski trip too. Like we stop looking intrinsically at things that we value. And if you don't have unicorn space, your values will get hijacked by the extrinsic. So I don't know if, I hope that's alarming enough <laughs> to make people realize it really isn't optional, but we want to recenter this unicorn space idea for all these other things, sickness and hedonic pursuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we have a, a second, I would love to sort of play a way to return to those values. I feel like that would be a fun way to yeah. end. Lizzie, do you want to do sure. it? Okay. So I just need you to pick something. Pick something that is exciting to you that's not related to your work. Okay. Something. I'm obsessed with soccer. Okay. Soccer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the first question that your listeners are going to do, uh, they're going to do the same exercise with us, is first ask yourself why. Why did you pick that? I played soccer all growing up. I burnt out on it. Okay. And just recently in the past couple of years started playing for fun. Oh my God, that's mm-hmm. amazing. And so you played throughout your entire life. Yep. And did you love it when you played or was it? Hard? I loved achieving at soccer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now you came back to it. I love that. So that's the first question. Why did you pick this? So we have soccer. Now I want you to ask the second most important questions, which is when you're playing now for fun. So let's not talk about it earlier because I don't always like going back because a lot of that could be parents' unfulfilled dreams and all that, but you're actually re-engaging in soccer for you. When you're on that field or when you're connecting with others, you're sharing yourself with the world Mm because you're showing your skills or the lack thereof Mm -hmm. because you're not going to be as perfect maybe as you were before. Yes, unfortunately. I want to come up with four or five values. And Beth, you have to help me remember what these values are. I want you to pick five values that you that you're thinking that you feel in the moment when you're on that field. Mm-hmm. Um, community, okay, community, competition, love that. I mean, just pure fun. Fun, that's a great <laughs> yeah. value. Confidence, like strength and ability, kind of, and commitment. Commitment, I love mm-hmm. that. Can I add like presence too and focus? There has to be yeah. some sort of flow there yeah. too. So do you remember some of them? Okay, tell Community, me. Community, uh, commitment, fun, competition, and confidence. I love that. And so as an accountability partner, what I want you to do and your listeners to do, because we're 66% more likely to do something with an accountability partner, <laughs> is I, instead of asking yourself, did I play soccer this week? Those are the questions you want to ask. Mm. Did I get a chance to feel, what was it? Confidence. Confidence this week. Did I get a chance to feel community? community? Did I have a, a sense of community this week? Fun. Did I have fun this week? Mm-hmm. Competition. Did I feel <laughs> Did I feel competitive this week? Mm-hmm. And uh, commitment. 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 And flow. Yeah, did I feel flow this week? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I want for you. Because you can get to those values. It doesn't have to be through soccer, but you deserve every single week. Not all of those, because it's hard to practice them all. Mm-hmm. But you should be in the consistent interest of your own life by following your values. So if you don't check off, I had none of those this week. I had no community this week. <laughs> I had no fun this week. Then you know it's time to return to that mm-hmm. unicorn space, that eudaimonia, because that's going to help you weather the hard times. It's soccer for now, but it could be something yeah. else yeah. next week. Keep those values for each other. Write them down. Do it every six months or a year. See if they change those values. But those are beautiful values. Thank you so much for coming on Misconnections. We could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, but 
I just want to acknowledge as ladies who really appreciate connection and are curious about it, it's so fun to talk to somebody who has the value of connection because I personally felt invited into your inquiry in the book Thank you. to all of the connection that you're making as you are developing Unicorn Space. So yeah, and listeners definitely read the book mm. because we've just scratched the surface. Yes. And I think there's a million great examples in the book that will start to help build the idea of this unicorn space for for folks. Um, and it's a fantastic read too. Thank so you. thank you so much yes, for thank coming. You. Thanks for joining us. And be sure to follow Eve at Eve Rodsky and at Fair Play Life on Instagram. And to learn more about Fair Play and Unicorn Space, go to fairplaylife.com and buy those books. We want to end this episode by hearing from our amazing storyteller one final time. We asked her what she thought she missed from the misconnection. She said, I would say what I missed was I lost sight of myself. We also know that for every misconnection, there can be something gained. Our storyteller said, what I gained was grace, peace, and a desire to get to know me, maybe for real for the first time. This is Misconnections. Thanks for listening. I'm Elizabeth Windham. And I'm Elizabeth Via. Special thanks to this week's guest, Eve Rodsky, and our truly amazing storyteller. You know who you are. This episode's story essay was written by Charlotte Beach, and the story was voiced by Claire Ferguson Bravo. Misconnections is co-hosted, produced, and edited by us, the Elizabeths, Elizabeth Via and Elizabeth Windham. Our theme music is Feeling by Danielle Misto. Have a misconnection story to share with us? Email us at elizabeths at misconnectionspod.com. And please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.